Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Father, we just claim that this morning. We just thank you for your grace and your kindness that shows itself in being with us. And Lord, I pray that if there's any here this morning that have not experienced that, they need your loving embrace. I pray that you would call them to yourselves. And Lord, may they come running. Father, we just want to hold ourselves within that embrace. Lord, and I thank you for the victory, Lord, that's assured, for you're the one who has overcome on our behalf. And Father, as we come, we just want to express our joy in coming together as a body of Christ to worship you, to pray, to listen to your word, to read, and to respond to your Holy Spirit's working. Be with us this morning as we express our love for you. With that heart, Father, we come before you this morning to sing your praises, to petition your kindness, to read your word, and to respond to the working of the Holy Spirit. We join with the psalmist who sings, Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. For my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of our heart and our portion forever. Without you, we are nothing. All that we have and all that we are is found in your steadfast love for us. And let us truly understand that truth this morning. Rip us from those things that would divide or compete for our love and focus on you. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts to see if there be any grievous way in us and lead us into the way everlasting. Open our hearts that we may see with spiritual eyes the sin that still clings to us, knowing that if we confess our sins, that you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let us not fool ourselves with self-righteousness, for Scripture warns that if we say we have not sinned, we make you a liar and your word is not in us. We rejoice in the grace that you so freely offer to those who repent and, and restore. And again, we claim the promise of the psalmist when he writes that God has put a new song in our mouth, a song of praise to our God. For many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. And blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust and does not turn to the proud or to those who go astray after a lie. And finally, let us hold true to your word and your promises so that our joy may be complete. Until that day that Jesus appears... Keep us, preserve us, and sanctify us in truth. We pray this in the name of your blessed Son, who makes all things possible. God's people, we say, Amen. Amen. A great God we have. Take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 1 as we continue with that blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, God with us. And that's what Mark has been writing about as we look at a divine introduction and approval in Mark chapter 1, 9-11, Mark had began his letter by identifying in verse 1 his purpose in writing when he writes, The beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is not writing a biography, 
but recording the ministry and the message of good news of Jesus. Mark starts his gospel by identifying John the Baptist as the one who prophesied in Malachi and Isaiah, as we saw two weeks ago. John the Baptist is not the Messiah, the righteous judging king, but the one commissioned to prepare the way, similar to the way kings of old were announced beforehand. We're going to see that John accomplished this by calling people back to repentance, worship, and expectation for the coming Messiah. Mark informs his listeners and the readers that the ministry of Jesus is rooted in the promises of the Old Testament. Jesus is the righteous judge and king that was expected. The baptism of John expresses repentance, which is a change of mind or a deliberate turning from sin. I love that phrase. We find that the only true repentance leads to God's forgiveness, we must understand. And even that is a gift from God. It was important that the people of Israel recognize their sin against God and repent. Their hearts had strayed from God and the covenant of their fathers that He made with them. The Jews had a very strong tradition of washing and cleansing rituals found in the law, so it was fitting that John would introduce baptism as a way to express their repentance. In today's passage, Mark is now transitioning from John the Baptist's ministry to the introduction of Jesus in the beginning of his. It says, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Father, what wonderful words. How we long to hear that. And one day we will when we hear, Not my faithful Son, but thou faithful steward, enter into the joy of the kingdom. We thank you for this testimony from Scripture about Christ. And now let us be faithful, Lord, in reading it, observing it, and finding the meaning in the Lord, and then responding to your work. Be with me as I speak. Let me speak words that are edifying, that are building up in courage. Let us listen with attentive hearts. Uh, take away all distractions. And Lord, may we just begin doing the work that you're prepared in our hearts to do this morning. This in your name we pray. Amen. Mark as we're going to see throughout his gospel, is very sparse with information when compared to the other gospels, especially concerning Jesus' beginning ministry. But as we shared two weeks ago, Mark is no ordinary letter or just a recollection of past events, but a bold proclamation of who Jesus is and what Jesus accomplished. You see, he's mainly writing to a Gentile readership, most likely the Church of Rome, during a time of persecution. And he wants to lift them up to encourage them in the struggles they are having. So he is writing to confirm the identity and the ministry and the message of Jesus. So Mark just jumps right into action in verse 9 by stating where Jesus is from and making the connection between John the Baptist and Jesus as Jesus and John now enter the stage together. Jesus began his ministry probably around A.D. 27, when he was approximately 30 years of age. After leaving Egypt, Jesus spent his childhood in Nazareth of Galilee, which was an obscure village about 70 miles north of Jerusalem. 
Interestingly, Nazareth suffered from a very poor repetition. We find in John chapter 1 that Nathanael, one of the future disciples, commented when invited to come and see Jesus, said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was also a city that was never mentioned in the Old Testament or rabbinic writings or even Jewish history. The fact that Jesus came from that region of Galilee was one of the factors that caused many to doubt him as the Gospel of John records. It says, when they heard these words of Jesus, some of the people said, this really is a prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was from? Obviously not understanding the full scope of Jesus' background and where he came from, where he was born. Mark here is informing his readers that Jesus came to the River Jordan to be baptized by John again. Not a lot of information, especially in comparison to the other gospel accounts. Mark is not interested in giving an apologetic discourse on baptism or why Jesus was baptized or the circumstances around it. It seems that to Mark, the main point is not so much the baptism, but what happened afterwards. Mark continues to write about three events that was very particular in this event first. If you're in John chapter 1, you can see this in verse 10, that when Jesus came out of the water, immediately Jesus saw the heavens being torn open. This is an interesting word here. Because in Mark's account, when you compare it to Matthew, is that Mark describes the heaven as being torn. Looking up that word, it means to a schism. It means to divide. Whereas in Matthew, he just uses the word that means opened. Instead of considering this a contradiction, this is Mark's way of signifying the reader that this is a supernatural event that demands our attention. R.T. France, a New Testament scholar, writes in his commentary that the opening of heaven or the tearing of heaven is a reoccurrent theme in biblical and pagan literature to indicate a vision which reaches beyond the earthly dimensions. So he's kind of like knocking and saying, listen, something happened. The, the sky was torn. It was ripped open. Something spectacular is happening. And secondly, Mark writes that after that, that Jesus saw the Spirit descending on him like a dove. This is where we get the symbol of the Holy Spirit as a dove, this and other places. Now Mark is not saying that it was an actual dove, but it was like or similar to the flight of a bird. This type of imagery points to the anointing of Jesus as the Christ of the Messiah, as we shall see in a moment. God's special servant sent to redeem man. And then thirdly, Mark declares that after that, that a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Before we just read through something that we see very quickly and know very well, we need to recognize that this is a remarkable declaration that the very voice of God the Father confirms the identity of Jesus and His approval on His ministry. The brevity of Mark's writing might lead one to think that only Jesus saw these three events, but again, we must remember to consider all of Scripture in context. As we do that, we find that not only Jesus saw, but John the Baptist also witnessed the blessed event and probably did those that were there that day. 
The phrase is in verse 11, you are my beloved son and with whom I am well pleased are two portions of scripture combined. The first one is found in Psalms 2-7 in which it celebrates the establishment of the king who comes in triumph. While Isaiah 42 depicts the Yahweh's servant on whom he puts his spirit again. Mark is saying Jesus' ministry is rooted in the Old Testament. He is the prophesied one, the king to come in triumph, and the one in whom God puts his spirit. And so here's the main point of the message of this passage today, is that God the Father, Yahweh himself, is making a public declaration that Jesus is the Son of God, and that his ministry is beginning and that God approves. It's almost like a, a politician who has a message, right? And at the end of a message, what do the politicians say? My name is da-da-da-da, and I approve of this message. Father is saying, this is the Son of God. And I am well pleased, and I approve of Him. This passage makes actually a great bookend to Mark chapter 15, where Mark also uses the word torn. In Mark 15, near the end, Mark says, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That's the other example where Mark uses that word. So he uses it specifically. From top to bottom was the veil torn. And when the centurion, the Roman soldier who was guarding Jesus, stood facing him and he saw all the things that Jesus did and how he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. So from the beginning of Mark to the beginning of Jesus' ministry to the end, you see that Mark is declaring what? Jesus is the Son of God. In both cases, he's declaring who Jesus truly is. Now with that, we see those things that are happening there. I want to give you three points to ponder. Three points that I want you to ponder this morning. John had been teaching and preaching now for some time that it was time for the people to prepare their hearts for the coming Messiah through repentance and baptism. Finally, he has arrived. He comes to that river. John sees him. However, one might ask, well, why in the world is Jesus being baptized if John's baptism was to express repentance and a preparation for the heart of the Messiah's appearance? Why would he have to do that? Well, Mark doesn't tackle that issue, but I felt it was important enough for us to ask that and answer that this morning. So this is free. I'm not going to charge you for it, but it is part of the message. Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 3 if you would. Because I want to answer that question. Why is he being baptized? Look at Matthew chapter 3 and verse 14. We see Matthew's account of this. It's a little bit fuller, a little bit deeper. We actually see that there actually was a conversation between the two. In verse 14 of chapter 3 of Matthew, Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. Look at verse 14. And John would have prevented him saying, hey, wait a second, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. This is backwards. But look at verse 15. But Jesus answered and said, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John the Baptist consents and baptizes his Savior. John must have just blew his mind at this point. But the point that we need to ponder this morning is that in Jesus becoming baptized, that Jesus was identifying with human nature 
human weakness, and human sin. The ESV Study Bible answers this question by commenting that Jesus' baptism actually inaugurates his ministry and fulfills God's saving activity that had been prophesied throughout the Old Testament. It's culminating with his death on the cross. And in doing so, John also endorses John's ministry and says, yes, he is that Elijah, he is that person who's been preparing the message. And he links his mission with John's and says, we're on the same page. We are not two people who are competing for followers. For we've already discovered that John the Baptist pointed all of his disciples to Jesus. And he lost them all as they went to follow him. And although that Jesus needed no repentance or cleansing, for he was perfect, Jesus identifies with sinful people that he came to save through his substitutionary life and death. Again, you've already sung this this morning. It's already been preached to you. For 2 Corinthians tells us that for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, and that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus was baptized so that he could identify with human nature, human weakness, and human sin. The second point for you to ponder this morning is that Jesus is baptized to show obedience and submission to the Father. By submitting to John's baptism, by the way, we saw in verse 8, whose baptism was greater? Jesus, was it not? But what does Jesus do? He says, I'm going to submit to that which is less than mine. By doing so, he shows his humility and by submitting to the Father's plan for reconciling man to himself. It signifies his death. Paul describes Jesus to the church of Philippi in Philippians chapter 2. Would you turn to that famous portion of scripture, Philippians chapter 2? We see this mind of Christ. In verse 5, where have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Speaking of Jesus, he said, Who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, for he was equal with God. Verse 7, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death. This does not mean that Jesus became less divine, but that he lovingly submitted to the cross no matter what the cost was. You see, the emptying includes his role and his status, not essential attributes or nature. And it was this very humbling of obedient and submitting to the Father's plan that prompted God to say, this is my son who I'm well pleased. We know this earthly, right? You know, our children sometimes, they seek to please us. And it's important. We usually tell our children when we're not pleased with them, very rarely do we tell them that we are pleased with them. Children love to hear it. Good job. That was a wonderful job that you did. Wonderful job. We, we love that. Even as employees and adults, we love to hear that phrase. Now, give us the money that goes with that too, right? But, but we do love to hear that. There's something about someone saying, good job, well done. Hey, that was an excellent job. Or someone who comes and just says, I approve of you. I see you. I know you. That's what God is doing here. 
But he does so in the context because Jesus is an obedient and submissive son. It's the Father who says, I'm going to send you to die and suffer on the cross. And it's the Son who says, yes, let it be so. Not my will, but what? Thy will, your will be done. And so baptism, for you to ponder, shows that Jesus humbly obeys and submits himself to the Father's will. And in so rescuing us from the curse of the law and the curse of the death. It's on this that God says, you are my son and I'm well pleased with you. And there is where I want to point out is the third one. And this is where we're going to part because I believe this is the main point is that Jesus is the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. This is the second time that Mark has pointed this out First with his own testimony, now by saying even God the Father says this is so. See, Mark began his gospel by declaring that this is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And in today's passage, he points out that God the Father and God the Holy Spirit also confirms Jesus' identity. We see the Trinity here. It's a word you will not find in the Bible, but it's a concept and a doctrine that finds itself woven in the pages of of Scripture. This is one of those moments when we see the Trinity together working to reconcile man to himself. From the beginning, Jesus was the Son of God. Some will say that he did not become the Son of God until that dove came and landed on him, or maybe to the point that he was on the cross, but that's not so. Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. Wayne Grumman in a systematic theology writes that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man in one person and will be so forever. Paul writes to the church of Colossae that in Jesus all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and that in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily and also that Jesus is the image of of the invisible God. Jesus is the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. And you and I may say, well, yeah, we understand that. But let me tell you, that is being attacked daily. You see people with their Bibles walking throughout the neighborhoods, knocking on your door, telling everyone who listens that Jesus is not the Son of God. You have others that are saying, well, Jesus is just one of the sons of God, the spiritual brother of Satan. And others who will just deny that he's anything divine, as we shall see even preachers and teachers of God's word. And so for the very essence of Jesus and who he is, is under attack. Not only was it during Jesus' time, but also today by those who preach and teach and study scriptures. Mark declares openly and clearly who Jesus is. The identity of Jesus as the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, that Jesus is divine, is central to the gospel. And from this point out, as we read Mark, He's writing about the miraculous works and authority of Jesus that proves and confirms what God the Father said. 
It should be enough that God the Father says it. But Jesus will spend the next three years proving the Father's point. Interestingly, though, as I said earlier, some have made the claim that Mark itself, the Gospel of Mark, does not state that Jesus is divine. That what you and I read must be just something that we ought to dismiss. They would say that neither his disciples or early Christians declare or believe that Jesus was divine, the Son of God. The divinity of Christ is something that was made up as years went by and the church was trying to justify itself and make itself more powerful. In the blog, Reasons for God, it writes of Bart Ehrman, who claims in his book, Did Jesus Exist?, that in at least three places in his book, that the Gospel of Mark never mentions that Jesus is God. Now, what have you and I just read the last three weeks? But in his opinion, Mark never states that Jesus is God. Most emphatically, Berman states in Mark, Jesus is certainly not God. Now, let me ask you, if we can put Mark and Bart together, do you think they would agree on this statement? Do you think that he could convince Mark that he was just mistaken and just, what are you writing? I don't believe so. Did Jesus call himself God? Continues Dr. Bart Ehrman. It seems a rather important issue, he writes, because if he did, one would have to figure out what to make of Jesus' claim. Was he crazy, hopelessly self-important, or possibly right? It is striking, however, that of all the Gospels, I'm still quoting Bart Ehrman, only John, the last to be written, reports that Jesus calls himself God. He goes on to write, if the historical Jesus really did spend his ministry revealing his divine identity to his disciples as he does John, isn't it a little strange that Matthew, Mark, and Luke never get around to saying so? Did they think it was unimportant? Or did they just forget that part? And hence why I'm sharing with you is that reading God's Scripture, not everyone's going to get it. Some are going to read its very plain words and then go on denying them. That's why it's important to understand that we need the Spirit to illuminate our eyes. And to be honest, to reason with some of these people, it's like a dog chasing his tail. He may be happy and enjoying himself, but he never gets any comfort because he doesn't get it. In response, the writers in the blog, Canon Fodder, write of an ancient letter in which a Christian named Aristides, a converted Athenian philosopher, wrote an apology to the Roman emperor Hadrian around 125 AD, which makes it one of the most ancient and earliest writings that we possess. It's a lengthy treaty which compares the God of Christianity with the gods of the barbarians, the Egyptians, and the Greeks. In his apology, Aristides makes it clear that Christians affirm another truth. Number one, the divinity of Jesus. You see, God, he writes, came down from heaven. He's speaking to the emperor. Remember, at this time, the Roman emperors are declaring that they themselves are God. And I think this is why Mark is writing this. He wants it to be clear. You are being persecuted because you do not believe in emperor worship. You do not believe that Caesar is God. And this is why Caesar isn't it, because Jesus is. 
This is important that Mark is writing. Before God came down from heaven, in the mind of Aristides, Jesus is not an angel or a semi-divine being, but the very God of heaven himself. This is very early Christianity, 125 A.D. He believes that Jesus was clothed himself with flesh. In very vivid language, the author affirms that Jesus is God in flesh. He took upon himself a real human body. That Jesus is not a semi-divine being, but the very God of heaven himself in flesh. And then thirdly, he makes the note that Jesus was virgin born in the Hebrew virgin. This doctrine flows naturally from the prior two. If Jesus is God and he took on human flesh, then his conception would be distinctive from all human beings. Take your Bibles and turn to Mark. I want to give you a preview of what we'll be looking at a little bit later when we try to answer this question. Did Mark ever declare that Jesus was the Son of God? And we would say yes, emphatically so. We've already seen it at least twice. Three times if we count the testimony of John the Baptist and his ministry. But you may say, well, did Jesus himself declare it? Because now you're parsing words. In Mark chapter 8, verse 27, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea and Philippi. And on the way, he asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? A simple question. And they told him, well, John the Baptist. Some believe that you're a reincarnation of John the Baptist. Others say you're a reincarnation, I'm using my own words, that you're Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And Jesus, in verse 29, asked them, but who do you say that I am? And here's our famous phrase. And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the Son of Man, that servant of God. And Jesus strictly charged him to tell no one about him. And as we go through here, I will share with you how Mark is declaring, not only is he the Son of God, not only is it rooted in the Old Testament prophecies, not only did the Father from heaven and the Holy Spirit declare publicly that Jesus is the Son of God, not only did a Roman centurion who is crucifying Jesus say that he was the Son of God, but Jesus himself declares that he is divine. Now I've parked a lot on that, on those three points to ponder. But I believe that's the main point. For Jesus is the Son of God. How might we respond today? So we're getting now to the application. What does it mean for you and I? I want to just give you two things. Not a lot here. I want the Holy Spirit to have free reign to do whatever He's calling you to do. But one thing that we need to do is we must understand the importance of believer's baptism. See, baptism doesn't make you a believer. It demonstrates that you already believe and understand what Christ has done for you. It's important to understand that baptism does not save you. You are saved only by your faith in Jesus, as it says, for by grace are you saved through faith and not of works. Believer's baptism is a symbol of the beginning of the Christian life. It's like a wedding ring. It's an outward symbol of the commitment you made in your heart. That's why we as a church, we practice and believe that Scripture teaches a cradle baptism, which is a confession of faith, rather than pedo baptism, which is infant baptism. We believe just as Jesus was submissive and humbled himself to be baptized, then you and we as Christians ought to follow in like manner. So I challenge you to hear today. If you're here and you've repented and you've accepted Christ, then your second command of Christ is to be baptized. Not only John the Baptist said it, Jesus said it, Peter said it, Paul said it. 
It echoes throughout history and through time. Express that vocal expression that you are a follower of Christ. So I encourage you to do so. So you need to understand the importance. Jesus believed it was important. God the Father believed it was important. John the Baptist believed it was important to the point that he didn't think he could do Jesus. We also understand the importance of believers' baptism. And then secondly, the second thing that we need to respond to this morning is that you and I must stand with the Bible and declare with all conviction that Jesus is the Son of God. To deny it, this central truth, is to damn our souls. It blows my mind that Bart Ehrman, a man who studies who teaches other people and is the New Testament scholar of a large university, would say that the very thing that he studies and teaches is unreliable and doesn't believe in it. It'd be like me becoming a spokesman for General Motors. And I start writing blogs and news reports and doing interviews saying, don't buy a General Motors car. It's unreliable. It won't work. It'll fall apart. I don't understand how a man gets a job like that. But you and I got to stand with the Bible and declare that Jesus is the Son of God. And you say, why is that necessary? Why is it important? Why is it something we ought to die for? And let me tell you, there were people in Rome who were dying for this very fact. And here, let me give you three reasons. This comes from Wayne Grubman. Is it necessary for Christ to be God? Why was we believe that? Number one, it's only because someone who is infinite God could bear the full penalty of sin. For you and I, no human could bear the full brunt of God's wrath. Only someone who was divine could do so. Secondly, salvation is from the Lord. We know from Scripture. All of Scripture demonstrates that no human being or no creature could save men. If that was possible, then the blood of goats and animals would have done the job. Maybe we could have just done the child sacrifice that the pagans did, but no, none of it would have sufficed. Jesus being God, the second person of the divinity, is important for our salvation. For number three, only someone who was truly and fully God could be the one mediator between God and man. So the divinity of Christ is kind of a big deal. We've got to hold on to that. People died for that truth. It's central to Mark's gospel. It's central to our salvation. If he is not God, then you and I are wasting our time here this morning. It would have been better for you to go to the beach, go to Disneyland, or just sleep in. But because he is God, we are committed to come together as a body of Christ and with one voice and one heart, with one mind, say that he is Lord. To not to do so is at your own pearl. Take your Bibles very quickly and we'll finish. 1 John chapter 2. Look at verse 21. He says, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Remember, Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is the Messiah. It is Lord. This is the Antichrist. You want to know who the Antichrist is? It's everyone claiming that Jesus is not the Christ. He who denies the Father and the Son. 
No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Then you too will abide in the Son and the Father. And this is the promise that He's made to us, eternal life. But look at chapter 5, please. Verse 10 of chapter 5. Whoever believes in the Son of God has this testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made God a liar. So you would call God's declaration of Jesus, Son of God, you would look at that day and you would say, no God, you're a liar. You do not tell the truth. But go on in Scripture. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. So what say you this morning to Mark's declaration? The God the Father said, this is my Son. And this is a testimony that God gave His eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Who do you say Jesus is? I pray that we join hearts and hands with one voice. And in the breath and the air and the wind of those who would deny who He is, say He is the Son of God. That's who Jesus is. Let us accept the testimony of Mark this morning. And may it lead us to respond to who He is. For if He is the Son of God, then what has He called us to do this morning? Father, we thank You for Your Word. It is true. It is honest. And Lord, in it we find all things that pertain to godliness and divine power. Thank you for the testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. I pray for those who deny that today. Father, I pray that you would break their hearts, let them see with spiritual eyes who Jesus truly is. I pray that you would complicate their message that denies Jesus. I pray that you would tear it down. Lord, I pray that you would destroy that message in any ministry that clears anything else. And Father, let us join with all the saints before Declare who Jesus is. And Lord, may it be marked in our lives as we submit humbly before our God. We pray this in your name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.